Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. John, our time last month in April where we... I really enjoyed our time last month in April where we spent time looking at prayer being the lifeblood of all true believers. And my prayer and our staff's prayer and our leader's prayer is that it wouldn't just be a one-month event in the life of our church, but that prayer would truly be a lifestyle that all of us would embrace together. But we're getting back to the Gospel of John. We took a break for a few weeks, but now we're back in John chapter 4. And I'm always fascinated every time we take a trip to India. We'll be going to India this summer. And if you've, if you've been to India, if you've seen pictures, here's what happens. These very strong women will walk miles upon miles to go to a well or to some source of water and they will gather the water and they'll put it in these big 50-pound pots and they'll put the pot on their head and they will travel back miles with the pot on their head and they will go back and forth all day long getting water. Now, in these villages, they have these bore wells, and our groups have worked on these bore wells, and it's kind of a very sad thing to see when you see a woman pumping water, and out of this well comes this slimy, muddy, mossy, gross water that she puts in a pot that you know she's taking back to her family to drink. And a lot of kids have gotten sick in these villages because of poor drinking water. And so our missionaries and our missionary partners, they have begun to sell these Sawyer water filters that really bring clean drinking water to these villages. But it breaks your heart to see just this really poor drinking water that these people live with. Now, a few years back in 2009, when we took a mission trip to Nicaragua, I must not have been listening when they talked about how to deal with water. Now, I knew we weren't supposed to drink the water in Nicaragua, but what I did not know was that every day when we went to go eat, we were supposed to take our water bottle, our Nalgene bottle, and dip it in the Clorox, dip it in the bleach to get rid of all the bacteria. I must have been not paying attention when that was Diane and others, Brian, that went. I didn't hear that. And so every day I just kept drinking clean water, out of the, the, the jugs they had there. But for some strange reason, some little microbes got into my Nalgene bottle. And I didn't realize this until I got back to America and I got Giardia, or what other people call Beaver's Revenge, or Montezuma's Revenge. I don't care what you call it, I just wanted to die. I wanted to be, that was the worst I've ever felt. Bad drinking water. Whether it's in a well in India or getting Giardia in Nicaragua, we all desire clean drinking water. Now we come to the famous story in John's gospel about the woman at the well who went looking for clean drinking water. Now, I need to backtrack a little bit because we've not been in the Gospel of John for a while, so let me just refresh your memory. Back in chapter 3, Jesus had the encounter with Nicodemus. And if you remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. 
Nicodemus was a man. Nicodemus was a religious leader. Nicodemus was educated. And Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus didn't quite understand what Jesus was saying. He thought it was something physical. How can I crawl back up into my mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus says, no, you need to experience this life-changing transformation that comes through being born again, being regenerated, being made new. But now we come to the woman at the well. And it's totally different. Unlike Nicodemus, who was a man, she is a woman. Unlike Nicodemus, who was educated, she's probably illiterate. Unlike Nicodemus, who was a moral religious leader, this woman has a shady past. And unlike Nicodemus, who we know his name, this woman is not named. She's simply the woman at the well. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Jesus will meet this woman at the well in the middle of the day. And she's also, like Nicodemus, thinking in human terms. She's thinking just physical water and and a physical well. She doesn't quite understand what Jesus truly has to offer her from his well. So as we read John chapter 4 this morning, let me give you the main point. Let me give you the main idea of what Jesus does to the woman at the well, but also what he can do for you and me. And here it is. Only Jesus can turn sinners into worshipers with his satisfying gift of eternal life. Only Jesus can turn sinners into worshipers. And how does he do that? With the satisfying gift of eternal life. So what we're going to do this morning is see how Jesus does that. How does Jesus turn a sinner into a worshiper, and how does he do that with the satisfying gift of eternal life? We're going to see this in three scenes, three movements from this passage of Scripture. And here's scene number one, a Savior on a mission. So let's read together John chapter 4. Let's just look at verses 1 through 6, a Savior on a mission. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus leaves Judea, goes toward Galilee. In verse 4, it says he had to go through Samaria. Now, why did Jesus have to do this? Was he somehow scared that the Pharisees were going to get on him? No, Jesus isn't afraid. Jesus is never afraid. He, he never does things by, by human timetable. He never bows to the wishes of humans. When this word Jesus had to, when it shows up there in the original language, it's what we call a divine imperative. It means it's God's sovereign plan for Jesus to do this. In other words, Jesus is doing what God had ordained him to do at that timetable. It's as if it's an, a divine appointment. 
Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, normally, Jews, of which Jesus was, they would not go through Samaria on their way to Galilee. They would take a longer route. They would actually cross the Jordan River, which would take a while, and then go outside on the east side and try as much as they could to avoid going through Samaria. Now, you may ask the question, why in the world would Jews avoid Samaria and the Samaritans? What was it about being a Samaritan that Jews did not want to get in contact with? Think about it this way. Now, no no offense against anybody in Fort Morgan here, okay? But let's just pretend like we in Sterling hate people from Fort Morgan. We can't stand them. We think that they're obnoxious. We think that they're rude. We think that our sports teams are better. We could care less about Fort Morgan. And so here's the issue. Every time we want to go to Denver, instead of getting on I-76 and going straight to Denver, we dare not pass through Fort Morgan. So we'll go on Highway 14 all the way to Fort Collins, and then we'll back into Denver the other way. And it may take us two hours longer, but we dare not go through Fort Morgan because we do not want to have contact with people from Fort Morgan. Now, that's just a joke. If you're from Fort Morgan, don't... I'm just trying to illustrate that the Jews would do amazing things to prevent being in contact with a Samaritan. And this this issue goes back centuries, where Samaritans were really considered half-breeds in the eyes of the Jews. And there was this animosity, there was this prejudice, there were these social barriers. And so even, here's what would happen. Like if you were a Samaritan and you sat in a seat on a bench, I would dare not sit on that bench where you sat because I could be contaminated. I don't even want to be close to you as a Samaritan. But notice what verse 4 says. Jesus had to do it. Why did he have to go through Samaria? It was his father's sovereign timetable for Jesus to have this divine appointment. He's a man on a mission. And so he comes to a town called Sychar, and he sits by a well, and the text tells us that Jesus was tired. Now, just a side note. This tells us something about Jesus' full humanity. He was fully God, yet fully human. He got tired, he got thirsty, and it was high noon. It was the sixth hour. And he was at a well, Jacob's well. Archaeologists have found that well, and it's about 100 feet deep today. So back then it was probably even deeper. 100 feet, and it was made out of limestone, and it had a lip, and you, you can sit on it. Now, now something about a well... If you remember your Old Testament, a well is where you picked up women. Remember Abraham's servant found Isaac's wife, Rebecca, at a well. Jacob met Rachel at a well. And God met a immoral slave girl woman, Hagar, at a well. So this motif of God meeting somebody, a woman, at a well is all throughout the scriptures. But this time, it's high noon, Jesus is on a mission, it's a divine appointment with this unnamed woman. So let's next see scene two, a sinner confronted. Number one, it was a savior on a mission. He had to go through Samaria. Now we see a sinner confronted. Let's pick up in verse 7 and read through verse 15. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, 
ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from men as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have you or have to come here to draw water. Here Jesus breaks down all the stereotypes of conventional etiquette with this predetermined meeting with this woman. First of all, a Jew would never dare speak to a Samaritan, and Jesus talks to her. So Jesus is breaking a cultural, a social, a prejudicial barrier by even talking to this woman. Number two, Men did not speak to women in public, even their own wives. You wouldn't caught dead talking even to your wife in public. And so Jesus talks to a woman in public. He breaks down a, a gender barrier. And you have to ask the question, this is a divine appointment, but why is she there at noon by herself? In the morning, when it's cooler, in the beginning of the day, all the women would go out to the well to draw their water, to get there when it's cooler in the day to visit. Obviously, there's something different about this woman. We'll find out in just a moment about her past, but just from the get-go, you see that she's kind of ostracized, she's lonely, she's by herself, she's outcast. There's something shady about her. She's there by herself. And Jesus does not reject her. Jesus does not ignore her. Jesus meets her right at her point of need. And let me just say something to you this morning. If you feel like you've sinned beyond the reach of God and that he can't definitely save you, look here at Jesus who met her at her point of need. Christ will meet you at your point of need. He meets her right where she is. And he's not afraid to talk to her which leads us to the deeper question. What was her need? What was her need? Did she need water physically? Did she need condemnation from a Jewish rabbi? Did she need a little pep talk to let her know she could have her best life now? Did she need a list of religious do's and don'ts to help her understand the law? Did she need a life coach who could help her reach her potential? You'd think by what you listen to at Christian television, radio, and, and all this stuff, this is what Christ came to give us. He came just to kind of help us along in life, give us this great attitude about ourselves, and that we could just pat ourselves on the back and, and be good religious moral people. That's not what Jesus came to do. What is this woman's deepest need? And by extension, what is your greatest need this morning? Now, in verse 9, she's shocked that Jesus was even talking to her. 
The Samaritan woman in verse 9 says, How's that you, a Jew, ask for a drink? So there's the social barrier. Why are you even talking to me? And then secondly, a woman from Samaria. Why are you talking to me as a Jew? And why are you talking to me as a woman? This doesn't make sense. Now, does Jesus stop and go on a tangent about all the political history between Samaritans and Jews and give her a big diatribe about why this past history has happened? Is that his point here? No. He tells her, Listen, I've got a gift. It's the gift of living water. Verse 10, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God, you may want to circle that word. As I was doing study, it's a gift of God. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. Now she's thinking in physical terms, right? She's thinking to herself, living water. You don't have a bucket, Jacob's well is 100 feet deep. Is there some underground spring I'm not aware of, uh, of Jewish rabbi? What is this living water? Because, you see, the word living water has two meanings. Just at surface level, that Greek word living water just means a spring of water, moving water, as opposed to, to stagnant water. There could have been like an underground stream. And that's maybe what she was thinking about. Maybe there's an underground stream. Maybe there's a source of, of moving water. And then in the great irony, she begins to compare Jesus to Jacob. She's like, now listen. The woman said to her in in verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. I don't see a bucket. The well's deep, probably over 100 feet. Where do you get that living water? Where's this underground spring? And then she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Come on now, man. He he gave us the well. He drank from it. Are Are you greater than Jacob? Well, Jesus could have said, but yeah, I am. I'm from the lineage of Jacob, and Jacob's the father of Israel, but hey, I'm the king of the Jews. He doesn't reveal that, but in great irony, yes, he is greater than Jacob. But see, she's thinking on human terms. But Jesus cuts right through the confusion of all this physical idea of what water is and living water is, and he tells her in verses 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. If you keep drinking from this well... You're going to have to keep coming back to this well. You're going to get thirsty. You're going to have to keep coming back, thirsty, coming back. You're going to have to keep drawing water from this well. But let me tell you the gift of God. Verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him, this gift of God, he will never be thirsty again. The water, this gift that I will give him, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know, one of the most basic needs of human life is to have our thirst quenched. We don't understand that because we don't live in a thirst-deprived culture. We've got Powerade, we've got Gatorade, we've got flavored water, we've got all these different waters, we've got Culligan. We, 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 we can get a vast array of water if we need it. Now, let's just do a little exercise here. When I was in um, middle school in Texas, um, our house was Grand Central Station for, for playing basketball. So you could play basketball year-round. And so we always played basketball at my house. We always got hot and sweaty because it's humid in Houston, Texas. And, and you're like, you're dying of thirst. And one of the cool things my mom did was she made, this was before bottled water, but this was back in the 80s. She made cups with all my friends' names on it. And she brought ice water out to us while we were taking a break so that we could drink water to quench our thirst when we were sweaty. So let's just play that game. Let's say you come over to my house, and we do have a basketball goal, and we're playing in the heat of summer, and we're playing basketball, and we're getting all hot and sweaty, and Dawn comes out, and she has your little name on there, and she gives you this 
glass of brown, dirty, mossy, mosquito-infested water and says, drink up. Are you going to want your thirst quenched by that? You look at that muddy cesspool of whatever, and you're like, no, thank you. We want our thirst to be satisfied. And oftentimes, the Bible takes that thirst, that physical thirst that we have, and, and, and brings it into the spiritual world, especially in the Psalms. Listen to some of the psalmists talk about this, this spiritual thirst for Jesus. Psalm 42, 1 through 2. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Do you see the angst and the, and the desperation in the psalmist and David? I'm thirsting. My soul is thirsting for the living God. Then you've got Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now think about the imagery here. Have you ever seen a stagnant pool of water? I mean like a really raunchy, stagnant pool of mosquito-infested water. Do you want to go like jump in it and have fun and have your kids go play in it, and you're like, ooh, it's like stinky. None of us want that. So I want you to picture in your mind the most gross, muddy, cesspool, mosquito-infested, mossy, nasty water that you can think of that's stagnant. That's a picture of the human heart without Christ. Our hearts are cesspools of wickedness, our hearts are stagnant, dead, cold, sin-infested, and it leads to spiritual disease and impurity. And here's the problem with our hearts. We can't fix it. We can't do anything to rid ourselves of this stagnant cesspool of a heart. And every single one of us is born with that type of heart. Listen to what Jeremiah says the Old Testament people of Israel had done with God. Jeremiah 2.13 For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns or wells for themselves, broken cisterns, broken wells that hold no water. You see, here's the thing that we think. We think that we can do a better job of satisfying our thirst than God. So we'll go build a little well and we'll sit in our little cesspool of fun for a while thinking it's going to satisfy. And when the mosquitoes come and when the sin comes, we just want to eat it all up. And it's a gross picture, but think about how often we do that when God offers living water over here and we, we don't want to take it because we're satisfied in our cesspool of sin. So what do we need? We need living water. The gift of living water water that Jesus promises this woman. Psalm 36, 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. In Christ, in God is the fountain of life. Isaiah 12, 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This imagery is all throughout the Bible of these wells, water, thirst, salvation, satisfaction. And the real question you've got to ask is, 
where are you spending your time, your money, your energy, and your resources to find satisfaction? Where are you finding your deepest longings? What did this woman spend time satisfying herself with? We'll get to it in just a moment. But what is she, how did she satisfy herself? In men. She found her identity and her self-esteem and her satisfaction in broken relationship after broken relationship after broken relationship, and it only left her dry, parched, lonely, and guilty. She was never satisfied. She was a sinner confronted, a sinner whose heart was a cesspool of wickedness, whose heart needed to be transformed, whose heart needed to be changed by the Holy Spirit, whose heart needed to be internally cleansed, whose heart needed the living waters of eternal life that only Jesus can give. And only Jesus can can, can crave the longings of a sinful heart with himself. I, I read it earlier, but think about how the book of Revelation describes heaven. Think about heaven for a moment. We read it earlier, but let me read it again. It's the same imagery. Revelation 7, 16 through 17. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And what will he do? He will guide them to springs of living water. Do you realize that in heaven we're going to be guided to springs of living water now? Is that literal? I don't know. It could be metaphorical, be literal, but the imagery is right there. God will wipe away every tear from their eye. So what you and I and this woman desperately need is to come and receive the gift of the living waters of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from the cesspool of sin, that cleanses us from the guilt and shame, and renews us inwardly where it wells up to eternal life. You know, the prophet Isaiah gave an imagery of God as a water salesman in the ancient desert of Israel. And in those cultures, water was a hot commodity. And so you'd have these salesmen traveling from town to town to sell water. And listen to how God presents himself as the ultimate giver of water. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Listen to the invitation from God. Come, everyone who thirsts. If you thirst, come, everyone. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear to hear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. God's saying, come to the waters. Come, drink, be satisfied. Come and receive that living water. But then he gives a warning further down in the verse. In Isaiah 55, 6 through 7, God gives a warning. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way, repent, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon See, Isaiah's metaphor is that God offers himself as living water, but we've got to repent. We've got to turn. We've got to recognize our sin and come for that cleansing. And so here's what Jesus does. Jesus confronts this woman's ultimate need, and it's not physical water. Her ultimate need is to have the cesspool of sin in her heart cleansed only by Jesus and his living water. And every single one of us here has the same heart that needs to be cleansed by Jesus and his living water. But not only does Jesus confront a sinner, 
but he turns her into a worshiper. And that's the third scene. A worshiper transformed. You see, there's a relationship between living water and worship, as we will see here. Jesus turns this woman from a sinner into a worshiper. Let's keep, let's keep reading. Verse 17. Actually, let's look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. It's here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all these things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Jesus knows the deep things. He knows the hidden things. When we think nobody else knows, Jesus knows. And what does He say? Call your husband. And we see her past. She's had five husbands. And the guy she's with now is not her husband. She's just living with him. And by the way, living together before marriage was immoral back then. It's the same today. Jesus had a problem with it back then. He has a problem with it now. Called cohabitation. But here's the way Jesus deals with it. Does he yell at her? Does he get up all in her face? No, he simply and gently exposes the truth. And see, in that religious culture, it was really frowned upon to have, it really, they were only allowed about three husbands. Now, we, our culture is a little bit different than their culture. You could, you, obviously, you know, if you got widowed, you could be married three times, but that was really the max. And, and a lot of times, women could be um, divorced very easily. And so this woman's been married five times, and now she's living with the guy. So she's, she's in her sixth relationship, broken relationship after broken relationship. The text doesn't tell us why she's been married five times. We don't know. She could have been abused, she could have been beaten, she could have been divorced, she could have been widowed. We don't know. That's not left to us. But all we know here is that she is a lonely, desperate woman ostracized at a well, and she must have been seeking her self-esteem, seeking her satisfaction in these women. And Jesus exposes her heart. At that moment, her heart is exposed as the stagnant, lifeless cesspool of sin that it is. And all of us need to have that exposure Before we can receive the living water, before we can be turned into a worshiper, we've got to realize that our sin is an offense to God. And she's obviously uncomfortable. Not only is this man talking to her, but he he knows her life. That's kind of freaky. So she changes the subject. I really don't want to talk about my immorality, so let's talk theology. Kind of like this. 
okay, so let's say I'm on a plane. And so I'm, I'm sitting next to a plane, and I start talking to the guy next to me, and he, he feels a, a great freedom to talk to me about his life. And yeah, I'm going on a business trip to Boston. I don't know why Boston just popped in my head. We're going to Boston, business trip. And um, I really, you know, um, I'm looking forward to this business trip because you know what? I can't stand my wife. It's an opportunity for get away from her. I can go have fun with my mistress. So that's why I go out here on this Boston mission, on these, these, these business trips so I can get away from my shrew of a wife and go have fun with my mistress and just really get away from things. Well, he, had, he didn't know who I am. So I say to him, well, that's, that's interesting. Um, I'm a pastor, and let me pray for you and your marriage. How about them Rockies? What do you think of Donald Trump? Okay, he's going to change the subject. Anything but talking about my immorality. And that's what she does here. The woman at the well says, Jesus, I don't want to talk about my immoral life. Let's talk about worship. You guys say in Jerusalem is the place to worship. We think it's on Mount Gerizim, this mountain, where we're supposed to worship. And so she's, she's bringing up this theological question, which is the best place of worship? You see, the Samaritans only held to the first five books of the Bible. They didn't take the rest of the Bible. So they, they looked at Mount Gerizim there in the north as the place of worship when they, the rest of the Old Testament tells us that Jerusalem's the place of worship. And so, so Jesus is really not going to play her game. Jesus is going to blow geography out of the water. He says it's not a matter of physical lo- location. Jesus says there's two very important things you need to know about worship, woman at the well. Number one, who it is you worship, and number two, how it is you worship. Who are you worshiping, and how are you worshiping? He says worship is not a place, a mountain, this mountain, Worship is giving glory to the Father. And he says the Father is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And so God is invisible. God is immortal. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere all the time. God can't be confined to this mountain or that mountain. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 6, 15 through 16, He who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God is spirit. He's the invisible, immortal, only wise God. Worship is not confined to this mountain or that mountain or, or this sanctuary or that sanctuary or this place or that. It's worship to God. But, but more importantly, how do we worship it says the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, how does this relate to living water? Because these are, these are tied together in the same story. There's three, three things to consider about what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. First of all, we can only truly worship God once we've been born again by the Spirit. Non-believers may think they're worshiping God, but they really are not. You cannot really, truly, authentically worship God unless you've first been transformed from the inside out, unless you've received the living waters of eternal life, unless you've been transformed by saving grace, unless you're a Christian, you really can't worship God appropriately. So first of all, you've got to be changed. You've got to be transformed. You've got to receive the gift of living water. You've got to be born again. John 7, 37 through 38, later on we'll get to this, but he brings it up again. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You have to believe in Jesus first to have appropriate worship. But secondly, 
We are to worship God in spirit, that is, with heartfelt passion. Worship God in spirit. This means that from the deepest recesses of our soul, we are joyfully, longingly, passionately giving ourselves to God in worship in spirits. The Holy Spirit produces these deep affections in our hearts where we just worship Jesus from the depth of our soul. That's what it means to worship him in spirit. But if that's all we had, we could have some really great emotional feelings toward Jesus and be totally false in our beliefs. That's why the second thing Jesus said is we worship God in, I mean the third thing, we worship God in truth. That is with solid theology from the Bible. So you've got heartfelt, deep, emotional passion for Jesus. At the same time, you've got the solid, inerrant word of truth that informs who it is that we're worshiping. So we make sure we're worshiping in the right way. We're worshiping the right God. And so here's the thing. When God borns you again, when God gives you living water, when God transforms you from the inside, when God takes that cesspool of your heart and brings uh, flowing, living water through salvation, that enables you then in turn to be a worshiper you're turned from a sinner to a worshiper what kind of worshiper are you you're one that gives christ your all with every bit of your your soul but it's also truth in the fact that you're immersing yourselves in the scriptures as well and the, the, the fascinating thing about this is that god seeks these type of worshipers notice what it says there Verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship. Have you ever thought about that? God seeks you as a worshiper. Now, does this mean God's incomplete without you? Does this somehow mean God needs your praise in order to feel good about himself? There's something lacking in God unless you praise him. No, that's not what it means, but it's, it's amazing to me that God... The God of the universe is seeking worshipers that will worship him in this way. Heartfelt, passionate, joyous, giving your all that's informed by the absolute truth of the scriptures. What would be the opposite of spirit and truth? Have you thought about that? What's the opposite of worshiping in spirit? I'm begrudgingly, half-heartedly, kind of doing this because it's what I'm supposed to do. I'm just going through the motions. It's just a duty. I'm begrudgingly doing this. What's the opposite of truth? Well, you may be believing falsehood. You may be believing heresy. You may be engaging in false doctrine. You may not even have a clue who the God is of the Bible. So how do you know that you're worshiping acceptably before God? How do you know that you're worshiping him in the way that he seeks? You worship him in spirit, heartfelt, passionate, from the depth of your soul, your whole whole mind, mind, heart, and strength to Jesus. But at the same time, it's informed, it's saturated, it's, it's grounded, it's undergirded by the solid word of God. So you've got the word, the truth. You've got the spirit, the affections. But how does the conversation end with this woman? She's been transformed I know that Jesus is coming, the Messiah. I've heard about the Messiah. When he comes, he's going to tell us all things. I'm excited about the coming Messiah. There's a, there's a Messiah coming. And what does Jesus say to her? Let me give you the Greek. I am. 
That's what he says to her. Our translation says in verse 26, Jesus said to her, I speak to you and he. Literally, Jesus said, I who speak to you, I am. Now, does that sound familiar? She's in the presence of the great I am. The I am has just given her living water. The great I am has just exposed her heart and transformed her into a worshiper. She's come in contact with the great I am. And he's given her the satisfying gift of eternal life. She was transformed. Have you been transformed? Have you been confronted with the depths of the sin in your own heart? to where you've seen your need for living water. You've seen your need for Christ and his gift of eternal life. You've seen your need to be forgiven and to be cleansed and to be transformed. And and have you been transformed into a worshiper? Not just translated from being a sinner to a worshiper, but, but what kind of worshiper? What kind of worshiper are you? Are you worshiping Christ in spirit and in truth? Only Jesus can turn sinners into worshipers with the satisfying gift of eternal life. Now let me just ask you a question. Satisfying. Are you satisfied with Jesus? I mean truly satisfied. Can you say this morning that Jesus quenches your spiritual thirst? That you want nothing more than Jesus? That you're finding in Jesus your ultimate joy, your ultimate passion, your ultimate contentment, your ultimate satisfaction, your ultimate treasure, that Christ is your all and all. Are you satisfied in him and him alone? If not, would you experience what this woman experienced? She was radically transformed from a sinner to a worshiper because Jesus gave her the gift of living water. And he can give you that gift this morning. Living water that wells up inside you to eternal life. He can cleanse you. He can renew you. He can take the guilt. He can take the sin. He can take the shame. He can take all of that away and truly satisfy you where you will never thirst again with the gift of himself. Would you come to Jesus to find the living water that alone can satisfy a thirsty soul? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I want you to take a check, take an inventory of your heart. Where's your heart this morning? Is it a cesspool of sin that needs cleansed? Are you worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth? Are you the kind of worshiper that he seeks? You don't look to yourself to fix this. You look to Jesus as the only source of living water. So would you go before Jesus this morning? And spend time praising, asking, seeking, whatever you need to do this morning to find in Him your soul satisfaction. Would you just spend a few moments in prayer this morning?
we are going to celebrate communion this morning, and in a sense, we are tasting bread, and we are tasting the cup, and these are sensory things that we taste, but it's a, it's a visual and a sensory reminder that Christ is our satisfaction, that we taste and see that he is good. Jesus, thank you for being our source of living water. Would we truly find our satisfaction in your deep, deep well of love and grace? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.